everyone, this is Jessica Chen, and you are listening to the Communicating Confidently podcast. Each episode is meant to teach and inspire you to find new ways to level up your speaking skills. Because here's the truth, it's possible, and I'm so thrilled you're here. If you enjoyed this podcast, please hit the follow button and share this episode with your friends and family. Now let's get into it. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Communicating Confidently podcast. Today's episode is about multicultural leadership communications. My guest, Joy Chen, is the CEO of the Multicultural Leadership Institute, and we are going to be talking about why it is so important for us to level up our cross-cultural communication skills so we can become better leaders. We're also going to be talking about how we can develop more cultural awareness, as well as how we can be more effective communicators in a global workplace. I'm so excited for us to get started. So let's get into this. Hi, how are you? Hey, Jessica. Hey, everyone. Joy, first of all, thank you so much for being here. So I'll do a quick intro of who you are, but honestly, I'm going to have you do it. So you are the CEO of the Multicultural Institute, but you're also the former deputy mayor of Los Angeles. I mean, that's pretty cool, but please tell us about you and the work that you do. Sure. Well, first of all, Jessica, I am thrilled to be here. Um, I have been your fan on LinkedIn for maybe a year or so, I'm sure with everyone else here. And so it's great to meet you (laughs) as your longtime fan. Um, Yeah, so I'm CEO of the Multicultural Leadership Institute, and we provide uh, keynotes and workshops um, and um, fireside chats with CEOs of Fortune 100, Fortune 500 companies. Um, And those are all about how we make diverse teams work better and how each of us can be more effective working in a diverse world. Um, I also lead the Asian American, teach the Asian American Leadership Accelerator, which is an online course, six week course that we provide um, to show Asian Americans the unwritten rules of the game. Um, and yes, I, um, most people, I guess, in Southern California know me as former deputy mayor of Los Angeles. So here in Los Angeles, you know, it's a global city. Uh, we have people speaking 90 plus languages in our school district. And so it was really my job to integrate all these people from all different backgrounds um, and into our economy and upskill them um, so that we all could achieve more. Well, first of all, Joy, I'm very thrilled that you're here. And for folks who are wondering, this is actually the first time Joy and I are meeting. So you are all (laughs) getting to catch this conversation as Joy and I talk about something that really bonds us, right? You know, just having this multicultural perspective, we both equally believe that having this perspective is incredibly important, especially in this globalized world that we live in. And, you know, for the folks who are listening and joining in right now, whether you are working at a global company or not, you know, I do think that this is a perspective, you know, having this open-minded, broad global perspective is something that can help all of us. So Joy, let's just kick off this conversation. So, you know, I want to hear a little bit more about why and how you even got interested in this topic of multicultural leadership. Where did, how did that even start? You know, for me, um, I would say it started one night, I actually have a very specific night. I was about 13 years old. So I had grown up, um, my parents had saved and sacrificed to buy a house in a good school district. 
in Maryland where we grew up, which meant that we were like the oddball Chinese in a school that was almost all white. And I want to hear about your growing up. So I think these, th these stories are really interesting. This actually is a picture of me. If you can see it, like me in the pink and white sweater and my parents and my brother and in the middle are Nai Nai, my grandmother who, who uh, lived with us. So, so that night, I was about 13. My dad and I were at home and he said, tonight's the night of my department's Christmas party. And I asked why he didn't go. And he said, because when I go to those things, I never know what to say to people. And I felt like a lightning bolt had crashed down my, on my head. I suddenly realized two things. One, my old man and I had the same problem. We didn't know how to talk to white people. And two, I realized that this problem would forever limit his career and his life. And so I would say, Jessica, it was that night that I was like, all right, I got to figure this thing out. Like, because I, you know, my, it didn't matter. Like my dad had come from China. He'd gotten all the way to MIT. Um, he was the hardest worker now in his department. And in his 30 year career, he managed one person who was the blind person in his department because we live in this ableist world and no one else wanted to manage the blind guy. You know, and so I was like, well, I want to be able to make a difference in our world. So I need to figure out like how mainstream American society actually works. So I, I would say it just started from there. And I just kept on struggling and kept on struggling to connect with the people around me. Um, and that led me to finally at age 31, I got belonged, fully belonged um, by becoming appointed deputy mayor of Los Angeles. And it was after that, that I was recruited to be an executive search consultant at Hydric and Struggles, which is a global executive search firm. So um, after that, for seven years, I found CEOs and board members for Fortune 500 companies. So I was more like a, you know, a kingmaker at that point of like deciding who is on the inside and who is on the outside. So I've always been really fascinated with the subject of belonging and how outsiders can belong. Okay. So I have so many thoughts about that. And first of all, thank you so much, Joy, for sharing that experience. And you know, what essentially gave you this light bulb moment of, you know what, I need to do something about this because, you know, your father's story of saying, I don't want to go to that party because I just don't know what to talk about. I mean, yeah. I feel like I can relate to that in many ways to, you know, having to go to these networking events and make small talk with people. Small talk used, I mean, you know, in some ways it, it can get a lot of people feeling very anxious. Yes. I'm a fairly introverted and I sometimes feel like I got a little social anxiety. So figuring out how to like be quick on your feet, right? Make right. small talk. What do you talk about? It is a skill. I really think it is. Yeah. But the good thing is you can learn it though. It, you can learn how to make great small talk too. Yes. I agree with all of that. And you don't have to have football. <laughs> I mean, I get so many, so many people tell me like, yeah, my boss thinks that I need to go to, tells me to go to happy hour because I need to network. And then I go to happy hour and all these like tall white guys are standing around talking about football, like a foot over my head. I don't know about you, but I'm pretty short in person. And, um, and it just makes people feel even more of an outsider than ever. So really I think is. that we can develop these skills. And, you know, I don't know if you follow football. I have nothing against football. My husband loves the New York Giants, but I'm just like, I keep confusing the New York Giants with the San Francisco Giants and like that's not even a football team. Right, right. So, so I think that like we don't, I think that there are skills that we can develop where we don't feel like we have to conform. Like I have to learn football in order to belong. Like I think that really 
the challenge is how can we be ourselves mm -hmm. and belong? You know, my thought about belonging, because I do think that this is like real, and you know, I'm so glad we're talking about this. And I kind of think about my own childhood experience. And actually, I've never really shared this story before. But you know, I, I grew up in the Bay Area, and I grew up in a uh, you know, a fairly large Asian community. And it was very much my parents' choice for us to grow up in this Asian community, because it was how they felt that they belonged. Because when you're with like-minded individuals, when you're in a community where you feel very similar to others, you know, you feel very safe and secure. So I grew up in a very Chinese community, um, right. just to say that. And it's interesting, because as a result of that, I also found myself gravitating to wanting to only engage with other Chinese or Asian folks. Yeah. But you know, it's interesting because you fast forward to the real world and you begin to realize that belonging is both something that, of course, we all want to find a place where we belong and where we can be with like-minded individuals. But this is where I feel like our conversation is going to be so rich because what's also important is for us to find belonging but to, but to also find belonging in places where it's not just like-minded individuals. Because yeah. in the working world, we're not. I'm not only going to be working with other Asian, Asian Americans. I'm going to be working with a global audience, people of different nationalities, ethnicities. So I need to figure out a way, how can I feel like I belong as well into that community? And that is where I feel like a lot of this, just understanding human nature, yes. human nature can just connect us all. So Joy, I mean, I'm just going to kind of leave that here. But what do you think about that? Is that something that resonates with you too? Totally, Jessica. I'm so glad that you brought that up. And it's so interesting. I think that your experience and my experience are sort of like two sides of the same coin. And it's fascinating that that, that led both of us to this work of intercultural, I think, for you, it's more about communications. And for me, it's more about connection. But it's all about the same thing, right? And what you brought up in um, the world of cognitive psychology and sociology is called group homophily, right? Which is just a fancy way of saying, we all tend to connect more and more mm -hmm. closely with people like us. Mm -hmm. And there are a lot of evolutionary reasons for that. But I think that, um, you know, if we look at, in fact, I have, a, I have a chart on this, like this is, this, in fact, a lot of sociology is about how humans form groups, right? We all connect and then there's out groups and there's forces of attraction that pull these groups together and forces of repulsion like stereotypes and mm -hmm. our assumptions about how other people behave or assumptions about other people that we label other people that keep people out of our groups. When we're out group members, there's all these power dynamics too, right? When we're out group members like Asian, African-American, Latino, there's a lot of implications of that because it causes us to become isolated and then we can't move up in our careers. But, um, you know, majority group homophily also limits majority group members because if they just hang out by themselves, um, well, one thing that happens is there's a lot of inequity that happens in companies, but also they don't get the benefit of outside experiences and other people's perspectives, right? You have diverse teams where only some people feel belonging and are contributing fully. And then outgroup members are not able to contribute so much. And that's a very inefficient way to run our teams, right? So, so I think that um, this lack of belonging question 
it really impacts everyone because it slows down teams and it causes a lot of value destruction, low innovation, all these bad outcomes that we don't want and that we try to avoid when we hire the diverse teams in the first place. I, you know, it's interesting because I do feel like we are all living in this very unique time right now where I do think that there is this awareness of the benefits of having diverse perspectives, a diverse team. Yes. And we see a lot of great companies taking real action to diversify their teams. And I think it's fantastic. Okay. And I think we have to absolutely continue on this path. And this is where I now want to pivot our conversation a little bit. So let's say that we've reached this level where, okay, we understand and we believe and we acknowledge that diversity is key. So for us, you know, all the folks, which by the way, there's over 65 of you on here right now, which is amazing. You know, so now that I, so now that we're talking about, okay, we understand it's so important, but do you have any tactical tips, Joy, for when it comes to speaking up? And, you know, now that we have this in place, how can we encourage people to feel included and feel like they belong? And I have so many tips I want to share with you yeah. all there, but Joy, I'm going to leave it with, I'm going to throw it to you first, but do you have any thoughts on if we have this diversity now, what happens now? How can all of us feel better, feel like we belong, feel like we're included? Right. That's such a great question. I mean, I think that there are things that we all can do, right? I mean, there are some things that there's majority groups, you know, the dominant culture, the dominant business culture, sort of Western business culture. First, people from other cultures, like we need to understand the unwritten rules of the game, right? So, so we need to bridge over more to understand how the dominant culture works so that we can work effectively within it, right? So that's why I'm sure that's a lot of what you do. That's what my Asian American Leadership Accelerator is. Um, but I think that for the diverse teams to work together, we all need to increase our cultural fluency. And cultural fluency is a skill of working across cultures, like understanding what are the ways that we look at the world and how other people are different. And of course we can do that by traveling, by reading more about other cultures, but the fastest way to do that is to build one-on-one -on -one relationships with people who are different from ourselves, different in race, gender, age. Because again, as we talked about earlier, we all tend to just grouped together with people like us. And there's a lot of great things about that. It feels very cozy and comfortable. And I love hanging out with people like myself. But we all, no matter what our background, can the quickest and easiest way to increase, and most fun way, to increase our cultural fluency is to really build one-on-one -on -one personal relationships. And amazingly, in the, work, in the workplace, that doesn't always happen. People still you know, due to 500, you know, 500 generations of cultures of, of hanging out with people like us, we come to the workplace, you know, for the first time, you know, just in the last couple hundred years, and now with technology in the last one generation, we're working people of all different backgrounds, and we're not used to, you know, we're not sort of culturally imbued to be able to work effectively. So I think we have to, the first thing is we have to consciously, intentionally build one-on-one -on -one relationships with people who are different from us. And that's the good thing is that's not a chore. It's like washing the dishes or doing the laundry. That's like a really fun thing to do. 
It is. And, you know, even for introverts like myself, I always yeah. find it's much easier to build one-on-one -on -one relationships than to be yes. that social butterfly in a group setting, right? So, totally. you know, when it comes to tactics, you know, and this is what I really love about doing these, because I like to provide folks with real tangible things. So one of the things that I often talk about is, you know, to really, and you, you said it beautifully, it's, it's these unwritten rules with work that we're not often taught in school, right? You kind of learn it on the job. But one of the things that you quickly realize is, you know, if you want people to support you, if you want people to get on board with your idea. One of my favorite tips is thinking about how you can build what I call an army of supporters, yes. right? Oftentimes, if we have an idea, we may directly go to people who we think just need to approve it, our manager, right? But if your manager immediately says, mm, no budget, no time, right? And they just immediately kill the project. Well, your idea is shot essentially, right? So what I say, you know, you have to think, and this is for all of us, how can we approach our work being a little bit more strategic? And I call it building your army of supporters. And that essentially is thinking about, okay, who can you reach out to? And I call them like your advisors, right? These are, this, is, this is like a triangle, if you can envision. You know, on your bottom is like your advisors, people who can kind of give you advice on your idea. And then next on your pyramid is what I call your endorsers. So these mm -hmm. are people who may be a little bit more affected by your idea, but you also want to get them on board with your idea. And my argument is if you can build out this advisor, your endorsers, you get to the top of your pyramid, that's your approver, the chances of you getting your idea approved is so much higher. But I think, again, a lot of us don't really think about how we approach work strategically. We just think, okay, I have this idea. It's good for me. It's good for work, right? And so let me just pitch it to my boss. But, you know, without building a solid support system, talking to people across different functions, across different groups, you know, I think that is that broader perspective that all of us can think about when we approach our everyday work. Yeah, I love that. I love that army of supporters concept of yours, Jessica. Um, and I think there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of sort of academic or sociological grounding for that, because like, Asians and many cultures around the world tend to be more high power distance cultures. So we just tend to think, I'll just work, put my head down and work. And the one person I need to think about is my boss, right? And then maybe my boss's boss, like if I'm in the same elevator with them, I have to like, you know, like, look, you know, whatever, um, show respect. But um, American and Western cultures are low power distance. And these are built by, um, like influence happens not just through positional authority, but also through um, through influence. You know, power comes from influence, not just through positional authority. So those are a lot of different people who could impact indirectly, um, but just behind the scenes, whether your project gets approved. So they could be across from you. As you said, they could be from different departments. So this is like a different way of operating than they do than um, than we were brought up, right? I just spent before the pandemic, I just spent 10 years working in China. And it was amazing how differently companies run there. And how maybe Jessica, the way that you and I were, were uh, raised works there, and it just doesn't work here, you really just get to see your boss, you would never really be in a meeting with different levels of people. It would just be your boss and you'll go around and say what you're doing and then the boss with hand would direct would uh give more orders and you would go away 
and then next week you'll come back and make reports. So you don't have this whole network of people who could influence your success, but that is the way things work here. Mm -hmm. And that's why I think your idea of, you know, this army of supporters is absolutely crucial to your ability to achieve more impact and to move up. One of the communications tips that I often talk about is the difference between talking to someone versus talking with someone. Mm. And I think a lot of us, because I mean, I bet everybody who is on this right now, we have a long to-do list, deadlines we have to meet, projects we have to complete, fires we have to put out. It's easy for us to just talk to people, do this, do that. This is what's happening. This is it, right? It's very like directive. But I always feel like when it comes to just understanding human nature, people don't like to be talked to, right? It's very yeah. just one-sided. Talking with somebody is more about, okay, strategizing. Let me listen to what it is that you're talking about. Compromising, right? And again, I just don't feel like these are skills that a lot of us learn, Yeah. but it's so incredibly important. In fact, Joy, and this is for those who don't know this, but I, I actually just came out with my 10th LinkedIn learning course. And this wow. course is called Speaking Up for Yourself and Underrepresented Groups. I'll link it in, um, in the chat in a little bit, but it's called Speaking Up for Yourself and Underrepresented Groups. And I have to give kudos to LinkedIn because they're the ones that came up to me. They're saying, hey, Jessica, can you help us build a course to help minority folks like me, right? build that confidence speaking up at work, but how can you also teach others to support people like us? And that's the second half of this course. How can other people help others speak up? Joy, do you have, and I'll share with you all some tips in this course, but Joy, do you have any thoughts or tips when it comes to communications and helping folks feel more included in these team meetings where perhaps it's always yeah. that extroverted people who are dominating the conversation. Yeah. Well, first of all, um, Jessica, that is so important. And congr congratulations. And of course, that's awesome. I will check that out right after this course, uh, right after our time together today. Um, this speak, this question of speaking up is so important. And I think that sometimes when we tell our group members, speak up, speak up, especially Asians, um, we don't recognize that there is a whole dynamic about lack of belonging. When people are excluded, silence becomes safer. Um, and that happens whether you're Asian, white, you know, I've worked in other cultures where white people are not the majority, where Chinese people are the majority, you know, in China, 90% plus 95% are ethnic Han like you and me. And white people are excluded and Muslims and other people. And these dynamics totally flip around, right? So um, when we tell out group members, like, you got to speak up, but we're not including you, um, that is kind of, can be kind of counterproductive and even more othering to them. So this is such an important question. And I think that number one, out group members need to be mentored and sponsored. They generally are not. Okay, so number one, they need to feel supported in their careers and they need to have personal relationships with majority group members and that often doesn't happen they're isolated okay so that's before the meeting and then i would say during the meeting i think it's important to really emphasize the interdependence of our team and the importance of every single member on our team because otherwise what happens western cultures are very individualistic like you say the loudest people win 
right? The loudest and most powerful people tend to win. And in these Western individualistic cultures, a lot of um, meetings tend to become these unconscious power struggles. Mm -hmm. And people are saying, well, I'm here to show I'm a leader, but that doesn't necessarily promote mutual learning, which is what we need if we're looking for good decision-making and innovation, right? So there's all these different invisible currents that are happening where people are positioning for power and the loudest people and the most powerful people are building consensus for their ideas. And all those invisible currents lead to lower innovation, right? Because people who have different ideas feel intimidated from speaking up. But the problem is when they do speak up, oftentimes their ideas get poo-pooed, right? In these kind of power dynamics, if only one person has a different idea, that idea will tend to be dismissed, right? Just the way these power, power kind of unconscious power struggles work. So we need to actually structure our meeting structures, the processes of our meeting. If innovation is what we're after, then what's new and different um, should be prioritized. Right now, what's new and different gets demoted. We need to be looking for, and instead of having things be like, oh, I'm winning, Jessica, that means you're going to lose, right? We're here to battle over resources. We need to set an entire climate of mutual learning. We're here to learn together. So that means that if our current assumption turns out to be wrong, that's a win for everyone. It's not a loss for the person whose idea that was, right? So, So I think there are a bunch of these processes that need to happen. And then I would just finally say the last thing is following our meetings and in general, we need to restructure the incentives of our team to promote actual inclusion. Because what happens is, you know, people continue to make power to get more powerful, even if they're being unconsciously exclusionary. So we need to start rewarding, notice, identifying, rewarding, and celebrating people who are acting as multicultural leaders rather than monocultural leaders. And this is something that isn't just the responsibility of a manager. I think everybody can take a proactive approach in beginning this dialogue, right? You know, like it it doesn't just have to be a manager. And so this is more from a a group dynamic perspective. You talked about changing the dynamics of a team meeting, you know, the way they're run. And it actually also makes me think about, you know, as individuals, right? Like what can we do? And I actually think about this story. So uh, recently I was working with a client and she she's actually based in the APAC region. She's um, Chinese, Singaporean, and she's fairly high up in her. She basically is in charge of the whole APAC region of her global company. And she was telling me about how she gets into these global meetings where it's leaders from all different parts of the world, you know, her U.S. counterpart leaders, her European counterpart leaders. And of course, she's like the Asian counterpart. And they're all coming in together into this global meeting you know, every month, right? Talking about business. And she admitted to me, she was like, you know what? I feel like I never know what to say because I feel like nobody is going to really care. And yeah. it's so interesting that she says this because, you know, I don't, I don't feel like her business line, right? you know, essentially her business line of managing Asia is any less significant than what her counterparts across the world are doing. And then she was like, and I asked her like, why do you feel that way? And she says, I just feel like they just don't listen to what I have to say. So from a communication standpoint, you know, I was listening to what she was saying, but then we started working together 
on how she as an individual could also up level her communication skills when she does talk in these meetings. And, you know, I'll share with you all one of the things that we talked about. So we literally walked through, like, how do you talk about your ideas? I'm just going to, you know, her name, like, I'm not gonna say her name, but let's say, you know, Jessica, like, how do you talk about your ideas? Like, how do you approach it? How do you even, what do you even start with? And we discovered that one of the reasons why she was also not being heard was because of the way she was framing her message. Mm. She would often frame her messages from a just like I perspective, you know, us in Asia, us in Asia. And I said, you know what, if you really want to gain the ears of a global audience, you need to make sure that you start your communications by going from a we perspective. Why does this matter for us as an entire company? Because of A, B, and C, whatever bottom line that is, right? And once she strategically changed the messaging framework, no doubt about it, people started to be like, oh, I see the value of what she's talking about now. So this yeah. is kind of like one of those like communication things. But Joy, what do you think about that? Does that is that something that kind of resonates with you as well? Yeah, absolutely. I think to me, the number one, um, you know, the number one thing in connection, like I've, I've talked more about connection and you talk about communication, but I think in some ways it's sort of like part of the same thing. The number one thing is to sound simple, but to walk in other people's shoes. Mm-hmm. Right. And um, I feel like for Asians, sometimes we tell each other like, Jessica, you're so amazing. You gotta, but you're too humble. You gotta learn to toot your horn. And I think that, yes, we do need to toot our horn. But I think that what you're saying, that illustration that you talked about, goes to illustrate the best way to toot your horn is to show how capable you are of helping other people reach their goals. Absolutely. So, So that is rather than being like, Oh, okay. Here's, I got my elevator pitch. I went to Harvard. I did this and that. Well, you know, people hate people who went to Harvard, right? So, <laughs> I, think that, so I think that sometimes that you just got to get out there and toot your horn can be a little bit of a trap, right? The most effective way to toot your horn is to like, what I try to do when I meet someone is, you know, usually when you meet someone they're like, Oh, tell me about yourself. And you start like, okay, here's my chance. I do my elevator pitch. I think what I usually try to do, what I started doing, which works well, is I say, oh, I'd be glad to tell you about myself. But first, tell me about you, Jessica. What are you working on these days? What are you looking to accomplish in the next six months? And then I only try to dribble out strategically bits and pieces of myself to the extent that I can help you. So my goal is not to not for you to be like, oh, wow, Joy is so awesome. It's more like, oh, wow, I need Joy on my team. Right. That's the kind of reaction that I want from you. And um, I find that that really opens things up. That person like, oh, wow, I really want to work with this person. And that and then it's like it can be like a game. Like I'll try to not say anything that just makes me look good. Everything is in the context of how I can help you achieve your goal, which you just told me. Mm-hmm. You know, the power of effective communications is really understanding, number one, who your audience is. And I'll yeah. tell I'll tell everybody here, you know, anytime I jump into a potential client meeting, you know, when, we're, when I'm talking about Soulcast Media, I always make sure to be the one to ask them questions first before I even really talk about myself, because I need to gauge 
what does the other person really care about? So that when it's my yeah. turn to talk, I can essentially focus my message on certain things. Otherwise, I can talk about a lot of things. But if all those things doesn't resonate with the person I'm communicating with, it doesn't matter at the end. So this is actually a tip for folks, right? If you're getting on a call with uh, somebody that you're trying to impress or you're trying to sell to or you're trying to pitch your idea to, ask questions more than you essentially are talking about yourself so that you know that is what the person cares about. And then you tailor your message to them. That is so good. Yeah, totally. So and it's funny because it flies in the face of, you know, we all are trained to have your elevator pitch ready. Like the second you meet someone like, and, um, you know, I think what you're saying really just flips that around. Yeah. And it's a mindset, right? And I, you know, I think everybody who's on this right now, which it's amazing to see how many people are on this, you know, it's just thinking about what is it that you say and how can you make sure it resonates with the person you're speaking of with? So, Joy, we actually got a few questions from our audience, and I want us to talk about because these are some great questions. And by the way, if you all are watching and you're thinking, oh, I do have some questions for Jessica and Joy, please throw it into the chat function. So this question actually came a little bit earlier, and this is from Monica. So her question was, do you have any tips on how we can elevate the culture of our company to be more diverse um, regionally, nationally, and just to have, and just to, again, encourage and this is Monica, and please tell me if I'm rephrasing this wrong, but yeah, how can we make sure that we prioritize diversity in our companies, regionally, nationally, globally? Any tips? Yeah. That um, well, that is a, um, I think that's really the main question that companies should be asking themselves now. I mean, I think companies have invested billions of dollars into recruiting diverse workforces. And as you said, that is great. But I think that what companies are finding is there's a lot of negative outcomes that have been happening. A lot of um, those uh, outgroup members, you know, African-Americans, Latinos, Asians have turned around and left already within three years. You know, during the Great Resignation, we've had the more, um, you know, outgroup members leave at a higher rate than in-group members um, in different geographies of the world. That's why I'm talking about like outgroup and in-group rather than just like white or whatever, because it's different in different geographies. And um, so I think that the conclusion that companies are coming to or should come to is that just hiring diverse and talented individuals is not enough. Like we, they also have to be able to work together. And so the question is, how do we get them? How do we activate these cultural fluency? How do we activate trust and understanding? How do we activate better meetings? Um, that's actually the, you know, what, what I do in my keynote to try to activate everyone. I think that CEOs are starting to think about this. I think we need to move from just diversity to diversity, effective, you know, effective teams. Diversity without conscious intentional inclusion leads to very bad outcomes, value destruction. You know, you hire all these excited people, they come in and then they leave. And then there's, you know, bad word of mouth. I mean, it's just like, it's all bad for everyone, right? It's bad for the individuals are excluded it's bad for the companies so diversity is important but diversity is only a first step inclusion is how you actually take the diversity and unleash talent and create value and um you know i think that's that's what today's workshop is about um our live today and uh, to me if i was to say one thing for companies if i was talking to you know 
CEOs. I used to, I've, I did, I've interviewed 4,000 of the world's most successful people as a CEO headhunter. If I was, you know, when I go back and I talk to some of those, um, those old candidates, you know, I say inclusion has to be, you know, diversity is actually the hardest part and the most expensive part, right? Bringing in all these people. Inclusion is actually the fun part. I love that. You know, it's inclusion and seeing it as actually it's a fun thing to implement in the workplace, right? Totally. Yeah, because it's really all about, and the cultural fluency, it's really all about learning more about ourselves and learning more about other people and how we can better work with other people to achieve greatness, you know, to achieve more than any one of us could do ourselves. And I think that, you know, from a mindset shift, it is shifting from, it's not just the loudest and the most powerful people who have a monopoly on good ideas, because clearly they don't, right? It's really a saying, how do we create the conditions where everyone is excited, willing, able, like able, maybe through communications training and everything, willing by creating belonging and feels compelled to contribute fully. You know, like I think about when I talk to, um, when I talk to um, audiences, you know, I think about the, you know, the Navy SEALs, right? So the Navy SEALs, you know, they're, they're like famous from the movies and everything. In a SEAL team, you might have like a communication specialist, an explosive specialist, you know, someone who is an interrogator, someone who's, you know, whatever. And so you have all these different members on a SEAL team. Every one of them is crucial to the success of a mission. And we need every single one of those to feel people to feel willing, able, and even compelled to step forward and do their job and contribute fully, right? Or we might all die, right? This is really high stakes. And I think that for companies now, it's similar stakes. Like we're operating in an incredibly volatile and uncertain world. Look at how our lives have been offended in the last few years. And in this incredibly volatile world, we all look at the world differently. All the different members of our team are crucially important, just like on the Navy SEALs. And if we can activate that level of um, ability, capability, and responsibility to contribute fully, what can we achieve? I don't know if I have any learning and development folks who are listening in on this, but I think about some of the you know, some of these amazing companies that we work with here at Soulcast Media, a lot of their L&D leads come to us and they're like, and they, they've gone to the point where they understand diversity, but it's like, now it's like, how can they get everybody in the organization to get on board? And uh, yeah. we work with a lot of organizations to bring in what we call this, this cross-cultural communications training. Because yeah. if you have a global organization, it's like, and, and you have a diverse team that you built, how can you make sure everybody in the organization actually can effectively communicate with each other because that's yeah. how you keep the talent right yes you can bring them in but are they just going out the door right yeah. this is where the cross-cultural communications um actually in fact i'm going to just drop this here we do have a cross-cultural communications course on linkedin which i would highly recommend folks it's actually a nano course meaning you can finish it in 15 minutes great but it's understanding that, right? It's like, okay, we're bringing in the diverse perspective, we're bringing in diverse talent, but now how do we keep them? And honestly, a lot of us weren't born understanding how to engage cross-culturally, but that's where I think, again, if my if I'm L&D folks here or individually, how can you yeah. be a better team member? It's learning those cross-cultural communication skills. Yes. So 
I think it's um it's learning those skills and it's also um it's it's knowledge and skills, right? So the, the skills are these skills that you're teaching. It's also just knowledge of understanding how different cultures work and how they fit together and what is the value that we all bring to the table, you know? And so that's knowledge. Um, and I think that um, that's really exciting. That's really fun. That's that's kind of like this, the knowledge that I that I communicate in you know, in my keynotes and when I work with companies, it's sort of like usually it's a CEO or a senior executive who's in communication with me, like a fireside chat. And we chat about these cross-cultural issues. Um, and you know what? They are so fun and fascinating because what is more interesting than talking about culture? You know, I mean, nothing. And communication, what you're talking about and how we work together. There's nothing more interesting than this stuff. So I just saw Monica, you're welcome. So we just got another question that I want to bring up. This is actually from Nick. What are the best ways to develop underrepresented groups in the workplace? Develop underrepresented groups in the workplace. So I'll, I'll go first, Joy, because sure. I this, this brings things, this brings in the new course that I just did with LinkedIn Learning, which again is called Speaking Up for Yourself and Underrepresented Groups. So yeah. Again, that course is two parts. It's us as individuals who struggle with speaking up. I talk a lot about some strategies. For example, one is like trying to speak up earlier in a meeting rather than later. Because if you if you speak up later in a meeting, you will just chances are you'll convince yourself of not saying anything at all. Mm -hmm. But now the second half of this course is how allies can help folks like us. So one of the things I say when it comes to communications is if we see people who are in underrepresented communities and you can tell you know, they want to say something, but yes, maybe they just don't have the confidence or, or they just aren't sure. We can essentially also pave that path for them, right? Yeah. If we know, like, for example, if you and I, Joy, if you and I are sitting in a meeting, let's say you are a little bit shy, right? Let's just say, probably not, but let's just say you're <laughs> like, <laughs> but you're just like, oh, I don't know how to say, you know, and I could see that. I can yeah. be, I can literally in the meeting and say, you know, Joy has a great idea about A, B, and C. Joy, would you mind mentioning to the group what it was that you said about X, Y, and Z? So that is one way to help perhaps the more quiet folks on our team. It's yeah. behaving that way. You know, one of the other ways is I'm a firm believer that, you know, a lot of big decisions happen when we are not in the room, right? There is mm -hmm. conversations being made with other groups talking about us. And these are the conversations that largely determine people's perception of us. If we are in a meeting and, you know, we're talking about somebody and their work, and we know that that person is doing great work, how can we bring them up? How yeah. can we highlight them? How can we, we make sure to give them credit? That is, I mean, that's, that might be what you mean, Joy, was about having sponsors and things yeah. like that, but people who can advocate for us when we're not in the room. So yeah. Joy, do you have any thoughts there? Yeah, I think um, I think that everything you said, I fully agree with. I think that we need to create envelope, create space for underrepresented voices during meetings and also outside of meetings. We all tend to unconsciously only mentor and sponsor people who we feel an emotional connection with. And the number one um, factor that people feel group homophily or closer connection with is race race followed by gender. So there's a lot of research about all that. So people naturally tend to only mentor and sponsor people of their own background. That sounds harsh, but 
you know, it's just there's there's very interesting research about that. So, um, so I think that which is okay just to recognize that and to understand that this is human nature. Um, there's a lot of evolutionary reasons for that. But now that we're all working together and we want to unlock the potential of our diverse teams, it's very important to intentionally create the inclusion. Because if we don't intentionally go out and build those mentoring and sponsoring relationships with people different from us, we will unintentionally exclude, right? We, we must intentionally include or unintentionally exclude. And I think another thing would just be to continue to emphasize that we're all interdependent. You know, we all see, and if you like, Jessica, I can do a little, a fun little test to yeah. show how we all look at the world in different ways. Would you Let's like do to do it. that? Let's do this. All right. So I'm going to do, this is an actual science, a science experiment in cognitive psychology. So scientists used to think that the way human cognition was universal, that we all look at the world in the same ways. They've since found that we all look at the world in different ways based on how we were raised. So I'm gonna show you a picture for three seconds. And I want everyone to just look at this picture and try to remember what you see. And then I'm just gonna ask you to type in the chat what you see, okay? Is everyone ready? So we're gonna go ready and count to three, okay? After I show you this, here you go. Can you see? Right. Everybody. One, okay, sorry, okay. One, two, three, okay. Everyone type into the chats what you just saw. Yeah, and we'll give it a few seconds because sometimes there's a delay with this. A little delay. Okay. For those who just saw, write in the chat really quickly if you're able to catch that picture. What did you see in the picture that Joy just put up? I yeah. know it It was a split second, but what there's an fern. Okay. Uh, okay, how many fish did you see? And how many ferns did you see? Let's get more specific. If, if you saw fish, how many did you see? Fishes? Okay, we're starting to see a little frog. Okay, three fish, a frog, and a fern. Aquarium, aquarium, interesting. Um, anyone else? Five fishes, one frog, one seaweed. All right. Wow, it's interesting. Isn't this interesting how see? some folks, I mean, folks are seeing different parts of this image that you- Fish tank, okay. So you know what? This is so interesting. I love every it. one of you is correct, but um, every one of your answers is also incomplete, right? None of you is wrong, but they're all incomplete. And scientists have found actually with this picture, this is actually an excerpt from video that has been shown to people around the world, is that people from Western cultures tend to notice the three main fish in the foreground, the three focal fish, when there are actually five fish. And people from Asia consistently notice the three plants, the frog, the snail, and the rocks. Can you hold the up that environment? Time? Okay, so here you go. So people from Western cultures tend to notice the three focal fish. People from Asian cultures tend to notice the ferns, the frog, the snail, and the rocks. And the five fish, these two background fish. Okay, so, so none of these is wrong, but this shows that we all look at the world in very different ways. Uh, Western cultures tend to be very individualistic. That's the number one thing that holds Western cultures together. We focus on individual actors, like these main three fish. And Asian cultures and African cultures and Latin American cultures tend to be very holistic. We look at the world in harmony and we tend to observe things in their context of the environment. 
And this results in different blind spots. For example, in Western cultures, if you move these fish into different backgrounds, like different colors, different things in the background, the Westerners will tend to notice like, yes, I saw those fish before. And Asians get confused. They're like, oh, you know, they get really confused. Like, oh, have I seen those fish before? I'm not quite sure. But the Western, you know, it's like, these are all different sort of cognitive, the ways that we process information. Asians will notice the environment better than the Westerners, right? So, um, so what that shows to me, it's like, you know, I spent all my time, I don't watch football, but I spent all my time reading psych studies is cognitive psychology is that when we're all looking at the world in different ways, it is absolutely crucial to our total success that everyone on our team is willing, able, and feels compelled to speak up and that we create that environment. Because if we only have certain groups speak up, that's when we have blind spots and low innovation and low agility. And, um, and so I think that Jessica, the work that you're doing to in communications to help majority group members and outgroup members to communicate better is so crucial. Um, and I think it's crucial for every one of us to think about how we can unlock, create value from diversity, um, whether we're sort of more in outgroup or majority group members, it's in all of our interests to make sure that everyone around us um, feels willing, able, and even compelled to step forward because it's with their contributions that we all to get, can work together to achieve greatness. With that, we have been chatting for close to an hour, which is, I'm like, where did the time go? But yes, it's time for us to, I guess, kind of like end this conversation. Now, Joy, where can people find you and follow you? Oh, um, that's sweet. You can find me at, um, you can find me on LinkedIn. Um, let me see, how do I even put something in? Maybe someone can find me on LinkedIn and pop it into the chat because I can't see how to put it in the chats. It's Joy Chen, essentially. I mean, just, Joy, just look me up, Joy Chen. I'm pretty findable on LinkedIn. Um, and then our website is themli.net. So it's like the Multicultural Leadership Institute, themli.net. Joy, I appreciate you so much. I thank you for being here. Hi there. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. If you're inspired to begin improving your communications confidence, well, we'd love to help. Join our monthly communications membership where I teach a brand new communications workshop every single month. Or become a VIP member to access our best communications articles for life. Or maybe get one-on-one coaching with one of our board of communicators. We offer so many ways for you to learn and it's all housed on our website, soulcastmedia.com. Check it out and happy communicating. Thank you.